This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Power of Genetics podcast. Today, we'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Bob Browntree from Boulder, Colorado. I have known Bob for quite a few years and have been following his journey, mostly when I'm sitting in the audience and I'm listening to Bob talking on stage. But just to learn a little bit more about Bob, we're going to hand over to him and ask him to tell you, us a little bit about your work, your journey, where you are, and what has brought you here. Let's start with that. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here and get a chance to talk to you in more detail uh, as opposed to looking down from the stage. What can I say about myself? Well, I've been in practice for almost 40 years, uh, which is uh, much longer than I ever thought I would do. And it's really been a fascinating journey. I started out uh, when I was around 19 reading about herbal medicine. So that's what originally got my attention. I grew up in the, in the deep South in Alabama and uh, didn't know anything about diet, nutrition, you know, never heard of that stuff. And then somebody handed me this book called Herbs the Magic Healers when I was 19 and I read it and I'd never thought about any of that stuff. You know, that herbs could be used for all kinds of health conditions, that uh, there actually appeared to be some science behind it. Uh, it wasn't just folk medicine, you know, there was a rationale. And that actually led me to studying biology in college, just because I wanted to know more about how these herbs worked. And the, the study of biology eventually led into medicine but I came into medicine from this kind of weird angle that I really just thought, okay, I need to get a degree, you know, so I won't get in trouble for practicing botanical medicine. Uh, so I, I didn't really take the degree all that seriously. And, you know, I, when I was in medical school, I was hanging out with chiropractors and herbalists and, you know, folks like that. I didn't know about naturopathic medicine at the time or, probably would have actually gone down that route if I'd even known that it existed. So I, I kind of kept to myself during medical school, but towards the end of it, I began to realize that there was actually some pretty good science there. And right about that time, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, you should go to a conference by this guy named Jeffrey Bland. Right. This is oh, well over 40 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay, that's really, really that's, that's, that's when IFM was like 20 people in a room. Yeah, there was no right? IFM, it was Jeff Bland. Oh, there was no, oh okay. Uh, yeah, forget the name. He had a seminar company and he was basically just traveling around teaching people about different topics. You know, he'd have a topic on osteoporosis or, or diabetes or something like that. But he was starting to show up at some of the integrative medicine conferences. And okay. uh, so this friend said, hey, I went to this conference and this guy really knows his stuff. He's not just up there spouting a lot of opinions. He's citing the research. And that was really the beginning of my 
realization that you could tie together the folk medicine, you know, the, what should we say, the kind of common knowledge that a lot of people had uh, with cutting edge science. And Jeff really did a great job of pulling all that together of like tying up the purse string so that you could, you could hold all that science you know, in, in, in one place and say, wait a minute, there is a solid rationale behind what we're doing. Now, understand when, when I'd gone to college, uh, home economics was the big course that nutritionists would take. If you wanted to study nutrition, yeah. you studied home ec. I know. That was what was recommended to me. <laughs> they said to me, you want to, you know, you want to learn health, go and do home economics, learn home how to make macaroni cheese. Does that even exist anymore? I don't know. But I actually don't. I hope not. I, hope I really not. hope not. They were, but they were teaching that you got the same amount of nutrition from a bag of, of potato chips, that you do from an apple. Yeah. And I remember read actually reading that in some of the home ec literature. So it was garbage. The kind of science they were promoting was all based on the the whole notion of the, what should we say, the Jetsons diet, you know, which is yeah. all these processed foods, Jello, you know, the, the instant meal, the whole idea, this is the space age diet. And right. the space age diet was being able to get everything in a package, add water, and you got an instant meal for your family. And fast and you, easy, fast, fast and, easy. and easy. And that's how you became the best housewife possible. Yeah. And, you know, along comes Jeffrey Bland, who says, let me show you the research on vitamin B12. And then not long after that, I started listening to Dr. Jonathan Wright, uh, you know, yeah. who was at the time writing for Prevention Magazine and, you know, a number of other people, Alan Gaby, you know, where it was just starting to get big at the time. And, and again, the, the thing that tied them all together is they were publishing research showing that nutrition was legitimate science. And that was a thrill to me because I'd learned in medical school that there was something to the scientific method. You know, I'd, I'd always kind of thought that, that science is mostly bogus and in service of, of product sales, you know, that it was just a good old boy network. And then I started studying the science and I thought, well, this, the biology behind this, the physiology is fine. It's the it's the final steps where it becomes a problem. You know, if we look at, say, this new drug that just got approved for Alzheimer's disease in the United States. Yeah, uh, just saw that. Aducanumab or something like that. And it's, it's based on the notion that beta amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's disease. So in the clinical trials, they gave the drug and the people didn't get better, but their beta amyloid levels went Pink down. down. So based on that, they said, okay, we're going to approve a drug that's not been proved. We're going to approve it, even though it's not been proved to be effective. And I thought, yeah. well, that exemplifies all of the problems we have in medicine is that we start out with really solid science. You know, we, yeah, we've demonstrated that beta amyloid plays a role in the pathophysiology. It's an inflammatory molecule. But then when we get to that final step, that's where the problems come in. And then, you know, you meet somebody like Jeffrey Bland or Alan Gaby or Jonathan Wright, and they say, we can use the same science and the same physiology. But when we get to the final step, we say, let's modify these biochemical pathways in a way that's not harmful. 
and maybe we can push the whole pathway down a different direction. And that's what became functional medicine. That became the whole science of functional medicine. I want to emphasize science. Functional medicine is not alternative medicine at all. It's, it's a different take on the science. It's a take based on, on systems biology, which is that you look at the whole system. You don't just look at beta amyloid and say, that's the bad guy. Yeah. Then we, we go upstream. We go find out why. We go upstream. We look at the whole system and we say, yeah. well, how do we balance all these different parts of the system? Um, so to me, that's that was really the start of my journey. And right after I finished my three-year residency in family medicine, I went and spent a week with Jeff Bland and Leo Gallon uh, and Sid Baker at a place called the Omega <laughs> Institute up in, in upstate New York. Spent a week hanging out with them and just studying their ideas. And, you know, that was the foundation of my practice. So I've always practiced what we call functional medicine. You know, that's been almost 40 years now. That's an amazing story. And and I'm, I have the benefit of having just recently spoken to Dr. Joe Pisano, to Dr. Jeff Bland last week. So I'm starting to put together the pieces, right? Michael Murray, who did work with Joe Pisano and started, I'm hearing all the stories, but from different people and starting to see the connections. Obviously, Sid Baker had such a big impact on everyone and who were all there at the beginning where you take a paradigm that is set and you start challenging it. And so we're having this conversation with Joe saying, when, when, when you know that the current medical paradigm is not working and you need to create something new, but you need to use the scientific method. And he said exactly what you're saying, but you need to provide the science. You can't just say, just because I think it's true makes it so, but you have to say, you know, we, we know this is good medicine. We will provide the science to show you. And then you go write textbooks and you create clinical trials and you build programs and you start teaching and a certification accreditation. And 20, 30, 40 years later, we're sitting here where functional medicine, integrative medicine is global. Yep. It's, it's a huge conversation. It's not just starting, you know, in the mega institute with five of you. And you were there. You were there. You know, I, I remember my first IFM conference. Um, I think my first one was probably in 2000. So after you, but still, you know, 50 people in a room where you could actually, you know, walk up to Jeff and say hi, because he wasn't surrounded by a bunch yeah. of groupies. You could actually get I to him. <laughs> and, and it's been similar with nutrigenomics, you know, where, where 21 years ago when I started, which I started in 2000, uh, I said, I'm going to, this is my, my thing. I finally found my path that I want to be in and, and work in. Everyone said, science fiction, fancy, fantasy, career limiting move. I was completely, completely kind of left out of all the dietetic, you remember I'm a dietitian originally, dietetic associations. I was never invited to speak. I was never invited to be a member. I was like, and they just said, you, you, you know, and now I love it. 21 years later, they always say to me, how are you so lucky to have found your place in nutrigenomics? I was like, lucky. Like I spent I spent like 10, 15 years as a leper, you know, like yeah, the only yeah, place yeah. I was happy was when I was hanging with you guys, you know, we're like, you know, so I, I think it's, it's, so that's what I wanted to take that story of what you're talking about and think about functional medicine, integrative medicine has come such a long way since the days you're talking about. And yet we still have such a long journey to go, such a long journey because the major medicine in the healthcare system is still allopathic. 
the major nutrition being treated is still macronutrients that, you know, as long as we can count our calories and count our macro, you know, our proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, that's still, you know, and if we can plug some holes with some vitamin supplements, well, then we've done a very good job. So for me, your experience of medicine was my experience of dietetics, which is just horrible. First three weeks, you know, chocolate cake and ice cream for a hospitalized patient because it gave calories, protein, carbohydrate, calcium, et cetera. And that's three weeks into my degree, I knew I was done. I was done. Never took it seriously, as you said, for the rest. And immediately after three weeks, I started thinking about what am I going to actually really study once I've got this degree? And, and, and I loved your comment about naturopathy because I, I was looking for a degree in health and I could find nothing. And my choice was food science, home economics, dietetics, or medicine. And I knew medicine wasn't the right angle for me. Home economics was obviously a joke. So I chose dietetics only to go like, are you kidding me? Like, seriously? So I had to wait to finish all my degrees before I could actually start. And I think you, you also said that, you know, for me, when people say, what is functional medicine? I said, it's not an alternative medicine. It's what happens when you do all your degrees and yeah. then you start learning. Right. You know, and, and that's what my, I always say like, don't, I never judge a practitioner on the undergraduate degree ever yeah. because it's what they do afterwards that afterwards, truly determines yeah. how, how they be. Anyway, enough of me. But most but of what my I wanna... training has really been after medical school, after, after residency. I mean, you know, all me. that did was teach me the scientific method. It taught me how to think. And I'm grateful for that. I really learned a lot about how to be systematic and how to evaluate a clinical trial. And that is allowed, if, if you really take the training that, you know, is offered in, in medical school or, you know, for persons getting up a PhD in one of the biological sciences, if you really apply that and you look at the literature of what's out there, it helps you see through it and realize how much garbage there is. I don't care if this research came from Stanford, Yale, Harvard, all the top academic institutions. I don't really know a nice word to use for a lot of that research. I mean, it's just garbage. It's poorly <laughs> conducted. And there's that yeah. whole notion of that uh, association is not causation. You know, one of the first oh, things yeah. I've ever taught, association is not causation. And I'm specifically <sighs> applying this to the nutritional research, you know, which one day shows that carbs are good for you and yeah. one day carbs are bad for you. Right. The, association. Association. What about, you know, essential fatty acids of, you know, omega-3 fatty acids? Are they good for you or are they bad for you? And my early days with Leo Gallon, Jeff Bland, where they went into all the physiology of what omega-3 fats do and how many systems they affect. You know, we're not saying, oh, take this pill and you'll never have a heart attack. Right, but that's what the studies do is the studies say, oh, let's take people who have never taken care of themselves, who you know had really unhealthy lifestyle, and let's give them two capsules of fish oil and see if that'll sort it. Yeah, that'll sort it. Sits that'll in the sort it all out. They don't have to do anything different. I mean, if statins will cure all heart disease, maybe fish oil will cure all heart disease. It's just a whole remember, different way of thinking. I remember reading an article um, out of the UK many years, probably 15, 20 years ago, where they were recommending, I mean, this was in, I don't know, like British Medical Journal or something, of putting statins into the in, into the drinking water. Oh, yeah, the poly, Do you remember that? The polypill. Yeah, the polypill, that's right. 
And then, of course, there was the let's put folic acid into the drinking water because, you know, so very, very, and, and you know, nutrigenomics had the same experience that the, the science of nutrigenomics was built on association studies. Absolute yeah. disaster, complete yeah. disaster, right? Yeah. So when I eventually, so what did my PhD, so dietetics taught me almost nothing, really, almost nothing. My PhD content knowledge it's not important because you focus on one tiny little thing that by the time you finish your PhD, it's completely irrelevant and it doesn't have clinical transfer in my case anyway. But what it taught me to do was to think, was to be able to assess large amounts of data, to bring them together, to analyze them, and also how to do research and how to read research articles. And like, that was a lot of years to do that, but it gave me that ability to step back. And what it, so what it did do was turn my head in nutrigenomics. So for 15 years, I was part of the association study, like if, you know, TNF alpha gene and an omega-3 fatty acid and cardiovascular disease, and it all must be true. And then, and then what, what my PhD taught me is when I started going down to it, all I landed up with at the end, that if it's not biochemistry, it's not real. Mm-hmm. And so I completely flipped on my head and said, I actually want to know what the gene's doing. I want to know what the gene variant's doing. I want to know what the biochemical impact is. And then I'll understand. And then I want to go obviously upstream with everything because I'm kind of functionally trained. But don't bring me association studies. And don't bring me gene-wide association studies. Please do not insult me. No, no, G-Wise. So, so, yeah, g love them. Fishing expeditions are excellent. So it's a, it's a very, you know, it's so interesting. I almost feel like, that's where we should start education is critical thinking skills, understanding how to read research. I'm seeing a lot of that stuff happening now still with even epigenetics where, you know, just because it tested doesn't mean we understand it. Yeah. And that's also what happened in genetics, right? We, we were so excited in 2003 that we could draft this human genome that we could now test genes, a lot of them, and get all these little results that we were going to we were going to build hundreds and hundreds of companies around genetics. Of course we were going to, right? Most exciting thing was happening. And then 10, 15 years in, I look back and I go, hold on. We, we, it's, it, this is what happened. And I'm seeing it, dare I say, in epigenetics now as well. Just, and it happened in microbiome as well. Just because we can test it doesn't mean we know quite what to do with it yet. There's yeah. like a lapse. And, and we have to figure out the biochemistry. We have to know, especially nutritional biochemistry, you know, is what is actually the impact on the biochemistry? Because that's where the dysfunction is. And then we can figure out. But so I'm completely, completely agree with you about association. Yeah. You know, I, I'm amazed at how many times the press will seize on something. You know, L-glutamine causes cancer. You know, and so there all there's such a willingness to have the association between nutrients and cancer, right? Folic acid causes cancer. Oh yeah. Um, there was actually a headline in Prevention Magazine, the vitamin in your breakfast cereal that causes cancer. And it was all about tired. the research on folic acid and how it causes cancer. And meanwhile, there's you know 90,000 chemicals that are being poured into our environment you know, yeah. the glyphosate and the, the flame retardants. And the press doesn't make any mention of any of that research at all. But, oh, these vitamins are dangerous. You've got to be careful. Terrible. 
Right. We we could go down a rabbit hole here, so I'm going to draw. Go down that okay. We could go down there. We'll never come back. So I'm going yep. to I'm going to I'm going to move us along. So here's my question for you, because I, I I'm cognizant of time, is when you and I go to a conference, which we used to do, we haven't done for some time. In person. In person. I mean in person with real people yeah. and a stage, and we meet these. I, mean, I think of the IFM conferences where it's like almost evangelical, right? The Yep. The passion yep. for functional medicine, for healing, for changing healthcare, for helping their patients is, is palpable. I mean, you can feel the energy in the air. Yep. And you meet these extraordinary practitioners who have literally changed their careers, given up their day jobs, mortgaged their house to study functional medicine because they truly believe that, that this is the way to change. And, and what kind of advice do you give to them? Because when I look at someone like yourself and I look at the amazing depth as well as the kind of width of impact that you've had from individual kind of patient practice in Boulder, where you've been doing for a very long time, but then all the books that you've written, the, the organizations you've been part of, acting as an editor in multiple magazines and journals, the writing, kind of the publications, I could go on, right? Get the point. So, so right from kind of that one-on-one individual attention through to getting the message out into the world what kind of advice do we give to these practitioners who have all the passion the energy and the enthusiasm and are at that kind of beginning of their journey well i guess there's a lot of things that can be said you know the 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 mentoring is on so many different levels you know, on the one level, it's just basic practice management. How do you make a living at this? Because the, the whole system is set up, you know, for you to see as many patients as you can as quickly as you can and get those codes written down so that you can get reimbursed. And so I, I talked to a lot of doctors. They're very afraid of making that transition. They're working for, you know, some big corporation. They're working for Kaiser or some hospital corporation, and they're really afraid that if they go into functional medicine, you know, they're not going to be able to charge enough money. And so, you know, the first thing you got to figure out is that financial model. Because uh, you, you, can't, you can't give away your time. And it's, it, functional medicine is very time consuming. You know, it's not treating people with bad colds and writing up a prescription for an unnecessary antibiotic and then pushing them out the door, you know, somebody might come to see me with a bad cold and we talk for an hour and a half. And then you can't be uncomfortable charging for your time. I mean, God knows the lawyers are not uncomfortable charging for their time. No. They'll charge you for every little bit. So, you know, they've got that financial model down. This is, this is my time and this is what my time is worth and this is what I'm going to do. So, maybe that's the first piece of advice is to, to value what you have to offer here. And it's an important piece of advice because the, the medical system is all based around procedures. You make your money by doing colonoscopies, surgery, any kind of procedure like that. That's where the money is. Uh, the cognitive stuff is not as well rewarded. And that's where the whole system needs to change is that you know, they realize, they've got to realize that if I spend an hour, hour and a half with a patient giving them advice that will keep them from needing surgery, it's going to save everybody money. So there's a huge ROI, a huge return on the investment 
from this kind of cognitive uh, interchange. And you, I've got to convince these new docs or docs maybe in practice for a while that have been a surgeon, you know, and I've, I've talked to plenty of them. They're a surgeon, they're making really good money, but they're not happy. Yeah. Or, you know, a, a really good example, Mimi Guarneri, right? Yeah. You know, Mimi, she's yeah. doing, you know, putting in stents. You, I, I never asked her how much money she made doing that, but I'm sure she made a lot of money putting those stents in all day long. And then one day she woke up and said, what am I doing? You know, I'm waiting until people get deathly ill and then I'm doing this procedure. Maybe I should be teaching them yoga. <laughs> right. So you're going to you're going to fall off a financial cliff when you do that. And then you've got to figure out, well, how am I going to make this work financially? And what I can tell those docs as advice is it can be done. There's different models for how to do it. Uh, one model is to have a team approach so that you know a patient pays a package amount of money to see you and then sees the health coach or the nutritionist or the nurse. And I, I think that kind of follow-up is really valuable. I mean, it's not just about giving them the right advice, it's about teaching them how to, the, the patients how to follow through. That's huge. Yeah, you know, I'm I, loving coaching at the moment. I'm Some of the, the best places I'm seeing, coaches. Coaches, co changing behavior attention to detail, decision-making, accountability is where the magic's happening. So yeah. I, I completely agree. That's where well, I, I think that's the next big trend. Something really, you know, relevant to what you're doing is I've had patients come in for a regular appointment and hand me a 30-page genetic report and say, what does this <laughs> look like to you? Yeah. Well, uh, leave that with me. I'll get back to you in about a month. Yeah. And still have, yeah, uh, and still not sure what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Let me call yeah. a few, four or five people see what they think about this or that or the other. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's a problem when people are able to order these tests online. Right. You know, especially, with those, especially those ones, yeah. Yeah, get them 100%. online, minimal interpretation. Or th there's a couple of companies that will do genetic tests, give people a list of supplements. Oh yeah, we love those those genetic testing companies where we just yeah. test to, to, to recommend supplement sales. Yeah, no, we, we don't love those. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. they bring them to so, you. Yeah. yeah. And that's where the, oh. the practitioner comes in. It's like, yeah. you need to be informed. And, yeah. you know, I mean, one thing that's clearly trending in medicine, and I think it's one of the good things. If I look at medicine overall, you know, it's, it's the glass is either half empty or half full, depending on the angle you look at it from, uh, you know, from certain angles, the healthcare delivery system is a disaster you know, pretty much all over the world. And the pandemic has made that really clear. It's like, my God, it's so erratic, yeah. it's so uneven. Um, and it's it's a really literally a crapshoot, you know, what kind of care you're going to get. You might get really excellent care or terrible care, really depending on where you are. What It's not just country by country. It's where you are in the country, who you know, et cetera. So from the delivery perspective, healthcare is just, horribly chaotic at the same time our ability to generate potentially massively useful information is exploding i mean our understanding of molecular biology is exploding yeah. our understanding of of you know even this concept of epigenetics that you mentioned what is what is going on you know we've come a long way from saying hey something can, that 
can uh, alter uh, the physiology of the mother can have a multi-generational. Yeah, and the grandchildren. Whoa, how does that happen? Uh, like, you know, well, we well, maybe it's methylation. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe, or maybe yeah. something else is acetylation, yeah. ubiquination. You know what? There's so many other processes that we're just beginning to understand. So the the data streams that are coming in right now mm -hmm. are microbiome, methylation, proteomics. I mean, there's some yeah, and genetics, of course. Yeah, incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so the new practitioner getting into functional medicine you know, they take the blinders off because in medical school, you're taught, just like you said, people said that stuff is useless. That, you know, what do you do with it? I, you know, I've heard people say, oh, that's good for party conversations, right? Oh, but we're clearly beyond that point. Um, I mean, I, I had a patient with a, a UGT 1A1 SNP that had to get a, a, a chemo drug. And I had happened to do some research you know, on the drug, and I found out it's not metabolized well by people with that genetic variant. And I called the neuro-oncologist and I said, you know, she's got a form of Gilbert syndrome. And I don't know how well she's going to do on the drug. And he said, oh, we don't pay attention to that genetic stuff. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So oh. I, gave her the drug I mean, I don't know why. Yeah. And she got sick. So probably because yeah. she, yeah. So that is an excellent segue into our final question. Thank you for that. So yes. as you know, my area of, and for the last 20 plus years has been uh, nutrigenomics. And obviously I've been through my own evolution in that space from, as I spoke, you know, association studies to truly trying to understand how genes drive biochemistry, understand the biochemistry. Um, in my work, I'm a big fan of polygenic risk scores, grouping genes, understand them together in, in the biochemical pathways. And then obviously the, the flip side, which is how do we use nutrition to change gene expression? How do we use plant bioactives, plant molecules to switch on and switch off genes or transcription factors, which up until a couple of years ago was completely absent from the genetics conversation. We were only talking about SNPs, yeah. and now, which was 50% of the conversation. And now when we train practitioners, we're absolutely teaching them about SIPs, which I call insight, you know, understand how your patient exists in the world, how they respond to food, lifestyle supplements, toxins. But also we need to understand, and this is for me being the most exciting part of my career, is understanding the power of nutrition, which truly lies in the ability to, to change gene behavior and gene expression, and therefore allow the body to, to heal itself. So that's kind of my, I call it insight and action. Insight, understand your patient. Action, what are we going to do? So now I'm going to kind of hand it over as a, as a last question is, where do you see, I mean, you've obviously been around genetics for a very long time now. As you said, you've had some less than fantastic experiences with genetics. I don't know if you've had any, um, we haven't worked together yet, so I can't say you've had fantastic experience with genetics yet. Um, but what, what is your sense about the role genetics is going to play, personalized medicine, health medicine, the future of medicine, functional medicine? Where do you think you're going to see it play out? Well, it's only going to get bigger. That, I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot of people's opinion, but it's obvious from, I've, I've been doing genetic testing on my patients for ever, ever since it became commercially available, you know, with uh, 23andMe and uh, and Genova was one of the first companies to really introduce yep. a panel. Uh, I was one of the early adopters of the Genova panel 
um, used it a lot for, they had a detox panel. Yes, you know, they, still <laughs> they still do. They still do. They still do. I have used that for, you know, for cancer patients or people that have environmental toxicity issues. So I've, I found it very, very helpful in that regard. You know, at the time we only had a few genes that we had the probes for. That's right. right. We didn't have the yeah. chips. You know, so we were you, testing one gene at a time, one snip one at a time. That's right. One gene at a painful time. And, and at a high cost. That's right. At a high yeah. cost. And then the chips came mm -hmm. out and suddenly, I mean, how many snips are there? 20 million? It's like, you know, it's they're literally millions of potential snips. Millions. That's right. How many are okay. clinically relevant? Uh, we don't That's know. That's the yet. question. <laughs> we we yeah. really don't know yet. So, but I do think it's just going to get bigger and bigger. You know, it's easier and easier to do the test. It's cheaper and cheaper to do the test. And the answer is going to, in the future is going to be with AI machine learning, you know, is to be able to, uh, to narrow down the genes that are really relevant by other means than GWAS studies, you know, which as you said, oh, it's a huge fishing. It's like a big yeah. fish, you just cast that net and you yeah. see what you pull in, but then it could take years to really make sense out of what you pulled in. It's it's usually the beginning of the journey, not the end. You know, it's, it's the beginning the, of the story. It's the beginning. Yeah, and the end of the story in my world is when you have a gene and you have a gene variant and you have an impact on biochemistry that is measurable and functional and you know what the phenotypic, you know, how that's going to affect the body. Like, then we can start having a conversation in genetics. No. So here's an interesting scenario is, uh, uh, you know, I have several patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I mean, you know, it's pretty common um, in, in the Western world. So I have this patient with Crohn's disease and I did a genetic test on her and she's got a variant in what's called the NOD2 gene, right? And, and so I just start tracking down, like the, in the main textbooks, they mention the NOD2 gene and say, yeah, that's relevant it predisposes you to more severe disease and strictures etc and but i'm the kind of guy that asks the annoying questions well why what does the gene yeah. do that's what what is the gene this thing and all this is like oh this gene predisposes you so the brca one and two predisposes you to breast cancer at an early age or ovarian cancer but the obvious question is, well, what's that gene? Why? Function? Yeah. What's the function of the gene? If you don't exactly. know the function of the gene, then how can you modify genetic expression? Right? I think that's the same page. Yeah. Preaching to the converted. Yeah, no, 100%. Exactly. So, you know, um, I know we, we're running out of time a little bit, but for me, what's been lacking in genetics is this conversation around what we call scientific validity and clinical utility. Yeah. So most of genetic test development has been built on scientific validity. If I can find the gene and the gene variant in, in, in a scientific, in a journal, it's good enough for me to put in my, in my report and in it goes. Yeah. But that's not the truth. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the first criteria. What we really want to understand is what we call clinical validity, which is yeah. just, first of all, was the science good enough? Let's assume that every single genetic test company knows how to evaluate good science and they say yes we only do it if it's replicated and good statistics etc but now i want to know does it change biochemistry what does it change does that changing biochemistry have an impact phenotypically does it change the body's physiology or biology in some way if it does as a practitioner can i do something about it so is there an intervention yeah. 
is there a biomarker that's associated with? So in some way I can potentially measure it. And the last thing is, and this is my, this is where we really need to be with genetic testing is if I have this information and I, my patient pays for this information, will it help me as a practitioner make a different decision from what I would have made if I didn't have this information? Yep, yep. And that for me is the, 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 the cherry on the top of clinical validity. Is this just data or is this clinically valuable? Because if it's just data we're selling in our genetic test, then no matter what the price is, it's a waste of money. So yeah. will it help you as a doctor make a better decision for your patient around what chemotherapy to have, what supplements to use, what toxins to try to address? Then genetics is now a clinical tool and not just data collection. And I think that's where we've got to be having the conversation. Well, here's a really interesting example of that is I've been giving some lectures on irritable bowel syndrome and the genetics of IBS. So, you know, for years, the thinking was that irritable bowel syndrome is, is primarily up here in your brain and yeah. that, you know, what you really need to do is find a good therapist, right? Practice meditation, it'll go away, yeah. Do some meditation, yeah. get, you know, get some stress management, it'll mm -hmm. go away. But then all this research started coming out showing, showing that you can have uh, channelopathies, ion channelopathies, you know, like the sodium channel. Well, what does that do? That affects nerve firing. Well, what if, you know, the nerves in the gut are more easily triggered? So they fire, they release uh, serotonin, you know, at an erratic rate, and that affects motility and visceral sensitivity. Well, suddenly it's a whole different ballgame. Suddenly we're saying, a conversation. you know, this is a, a nerve conduction issue and what can we do? How can we focus on, you know, making those nerves calmer? Yeah. And maybe meditation and therapy will help in a general way, but that's not, the not cure enough. If you've actually no. got, you know, yeah. you, now we can say, we think you've got a real problem. It's a right? real thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. And that's yeah. based yeah. on finding these genetic variants. So the it's very validating for the patient to say, here's your genetic variant. Or, you know, somebody with small fiber neuropathy, which is another one of those kind of vague scenarios where they're they're, you know, they've got a lot of tenderness in their in their muscles. And you can biopsy the nerves and you can show a problem, but it turns out that they're also certain kind of sodium channel uh, channelopathies going on in that scenario. So you can find the genetic variant. And I found that in a patient recently. So uh, amazing! It's, it's highly validating to do this genetic analysis. And that's the future is going to be where we have assistance from our computers, you know, they can scan 10,000 different genetic variants and say, this one may be relevant because we need my brain's not big enough to interpret all that <laughs> no 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 one should have to deal with that amount of data no one can yes. so i think you're right i think that's why the future is both a combination of good medicine yep. and i mean functional medicine health medicine technology and a, and, a, and a different education for our practitioners so i am going to that's a great way to to close us down, a great way to end, something very exciting for us to look forward to. I want to thank you, Bob, for a fascinating conversation. You never know where it's going to land up going. 
yes. but I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for your time. I don't know if you've got any last words, but otherwise, yes. Well, I, I mean, my last word for people that are going into functional medicine is to stick with it because this really is the future of medicine. It's, you know, it's a, it's a really viable, solidly scientific approach to you know, many of the problems that we're identifying in the current system of medicine. So I, I really think it's the way to go, stick with it, and you'll figure out a way to make it work financially. Absolutely. I always say, just jump in, just jump in. Don't, don't wait, don't look from afar, just jump in we'll, and then figure out the journey as you go along. We'll figure it out later. Completely. <laughs> we'll figure it out later and come join the community. Join community. Yes, Join sure. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And looking you forward bet, to yeah. seeing you in person yes. soon at yes. one of the conferences. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.